Scripture reading is from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 through 17. This is God's word. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations, as his rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow, and I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. And the Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them. As the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and the new wine the young women. What a king we have in Jesus. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. Morning, church. Thank you, Joel, for the prayer. Thank you, worship team, for leading us so well this morning. Uh, Amazed by the musical quality each week, uh, along with the new instruments that you introduced. The shaker, I'm familiar with. I'm not sure what the other thing was, though. The pounder? Pound. (laughs) All right. Uh, Today we're back in Zechariah, and in case you've forgotten, uh, let me take a brief moment to remind you that God uh, spoke to his people uh, through Zechariah after they had returned from, or yeah, after they had returned uh, back home uh, from years of slavery in Babylon, right? That was the exile period that they suffered through. And it's not as if the, the people around them were uh, wanting to make life easy for them once they made the move. Uh, they were trying to rebuild their lives in their city, but there, were, there was constant opposition that they had to battle against. You know, Persia was the superpower uh, at the time, calling all the shots, and the Jews are virtually nobodies with no earthly king to even represent them during such a vulnerable time in their History. And so it's in this context where God speaks to his people through Zechariah. And today he opens up with these words Rejoice greatly. Okay, not just rejoice, but greatly rejoice, my people. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he are the words of God for us today. And so this vision of a king is supposed to inspire confidence and hope for a people whose lives have been 
in shambles. But the thing is, behold, your king is followed by these rather unimpressive words, right? Your king, humble and mounted on a donkey. And it's not even a picture of a fully grown donkey. It's a young donkey, right? Look, if, if your intention is to lift up the spirit of a downtrodden people and your opening words are rejoice greatly, behold, your king is coming, wouldn't you want your king to ride into the city with trumpets blaring? I would want my king to ride on a large chariot with armored stallions dressed in gold, looking strong and healthy, ready for war. I mean, that's the kind of picture anyone would expect from their great king. But no, not with this king. We're given a very different picture, a very surprising one. The king who is supposed to inspire hope and confidence is riding on an undersized donkey. There's something very awkward about this picture, don't you think? I mean, I've sat on horses of different sizes. You know, even when a full-grown man sits on a smaller horse, right, not even a donkey, I mean, even a small horse is larger than a donkey, but even, a, even when I sit on a smaller horse, there's something very awkward and undignified about the whole experience, right? Even if I tried to look intimidating, the smallness of the horse would make me look rather weak and actually pathetic. It's not how you would want to present yourself, right, if you were a king trying to project strength and inspire confidence, so in today's message, I wanted to highlight the paradoxical and counterintuitive nature of Jesus' kingship as well as his kingdom. Okay, why do I mention Jesus here right off the bat? Well, because most of you already know that the gospel writers directly quote from this exact passage when describing Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, right? Just a few days before he hangs on a cross, which is, by the way, another very strange visual, another very paradoxical image, Jesus hanging on a cross, right? The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of the universe, treated like the lowliest scum of the world, by the very ones he created, hanging on a tree. What is going on here? What, what kind of teaching is this? How are we to understand this presentation? Right, the uncomfortable truth for us today is that God calls us to greatly rejoice as we behold our king vividly displaying Earthly weakness doesn't make any sense, humanly speaking, brothers and sisters. It makes no sense. It goes against man's conventional wisdom. How is the way up, the way down? How can God say, if you want to gain your life, you have to first lose it? 
The last shall be first and the first shall be last. What is that? How does that work? How is that even fair? There's much that's counterintuitive in the kingdom of God. Our staff, a few days ago, were sitting, actually, were we, were we sitting or were we on, I think we are online. We were online, I believe. We do like our online staff meetings with the KM, and we're discussing, I believe, uh, who should receive gifts, because we, we tend to do year-end gifts for volunteers, and uh, we're talking about gifts to the teachers, uh, and then one person said, you know, does every teacher get the same amount of gift. It was a gift card, basically, okay? Because some teachers, they joined late in the year. Some teachers, they served all year, okay? And so should we have a different amount for teachers who joined later in the year? And Pastor Park, in his wisdom, and I believe he was reflecting on this principle of the kingdom, the last shall be first, the first shall be last, right? There's, there's even a parable teaching that, right? I believe because of that teaching, is that all teachers will receive the same amount of gift, whether they joined a day ago, okay? <laughs> right? that, that's, a king, that's a counterintuitive principle. It's strange. Why is this so important? Because when you live out your life according to your own personal wisdom or worldly wisdom, right, the way things make sense to you in your mind, in your puny little mind, or the way things feel right to you, based on your experiences or your fickle emotions, what do you think is going to happen to you in the end? Jesus said, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through that wide gate and walk on that broad road. That's going to happen. In contrast, small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, right? This counterintuitive road. Only if you find it. So it's when we trust in God's wisdom and embrace the paradoxical and counterintuitive nature of Jesus' kingship and his upside-down kingdom, as many have called it, that's when we're able to inherit true life and become, in the end, incorruptible and imperishable. That's why this is important. That's what I want all, of, all you to experience. That's the heart behind this message. That the humble king and his upside-down kingdom. There's actually a, a good amount that I wanted to share from this passage. You know, truth be told, I had about an hour's worth of material that I trimmed down frantically last night so that you would not get upset at me this morning. <laughs> I was successful, okay? But uh, I'm not sure how the message will go. You know, I, I thought it would be most helpful to offer some ways in which this upside-down kingdom of God is meant to shape us in this present life that we're all trying to persevere through as faithfully as we can. As, as your brother Joel prayed, life, life has been hard for many of you. And as we get older, I tell you, it's only going to increase in its hardships. So I have five points to share. And I, I really don't expect you to remember them all. 
but I'm sharing these points in hopes that there will be at least one or two things in this message that God will use to minister to your soul wherever you, you may be on the continuum today, okay? So how is God's upside-down kingdom meant to shape us? Number one, first, it's meant to create, I believe, an uncomfortable level of dissonance in your life. If you're a Christian, you already should know what this feels like. But regardless of your faith, regardless of where you, where you may be on this journey, you should be able to relate to this if you've ever had to leave, let's say, your old company and its culture and its values and adopt a new company's right culture and core values. Because when Jesus entered into human history, he essentially overthrew the existing order and established something that was entirely new. And that created an incredible amount of dissonance among the people, which is one of the main reasons why the authorities of his day chose to put him to death. I mean, you think about it, Jesus, he really doesn't give us a middle option, right? <laughs> he is either Lord of everything, <laughs> and you, you need to bow down to him and worship him, or you're forced to reject him. There's no middle ground. You're forced to reject him. And in their case, they found a way to get rid of him. You kind of have to if you're not going to worship him as Lord. But why, why, the, why the dissonance, practically speaking? You know? Well, it's because the world's ethic is, by and large, built on human Pride, is it not? I am my own God, my own Lord and King. I get to choose whom I will worship, and I will do whatever I can to succeed in this world. I want that $700 million contract that many of you are talking about this morning. Right? That's where our minds tend to gravitate toward. If you, if you didn't know, there's a big splash in the baseball world. Right? Shohei Otani just won a huge contract with the Dodgers. Right? Largest contract, I believe, in human history. <laughs> Probably uh, something like that, right? We're kind of chasing that. Right? People, people chase that as a dream, right? Kingdom ethic is quite different. Kingdom ethic is you love God, Right? The one true God, right? not just any God, but one God, Yahweh. He is the only true God. Right? Even that in itself is very counter-cultural and counter-intuitive. And you love neighbor, right? And so you, you put other, others before you. You know, we take this teaching for granted, but many historians have pointed out how unconventional this sort of thinking was prior to Jesus' teaching. That's why the dissonance. Which leads me to my next point. God's upside-down kingdom is meant to gradually reorient our priorities. And I want to emphasize there the word gradually because I wholeheartedly believe that it is a lifelong process of being 
transformed into his image. It doesn't just happen like all at once. Gradual learning and growing process of realigning our priorities with his. See, our natural instinct is not to worship Jesus, but it's to use Jesus, it's to use religion, it's to use faith for personal gain, just like Judas did, right? The famous Judas Iscariot, disciple of Jesus, but in the end, he just wanted to use Jesus for his personal gain. Or when we're faced with a threat, when things become uneasy, our instinct is to draw a sword like the Apostle Peter, forgetting what Jesus' mission actually was. That's our instinct. And when all else fails, our instinct is to abandon Christ altogether and flee, which is what all of Jesus' disciples did when it counted the most. That's... that's how we tend to operate. That's our priority, self first. Got to preserve my life first. But if you know that the way up is the way down and that to lose your life is to ultimately gain your life, then no matter what hardship comes your way, you will not cower in fear and compromise your belief that Jesus is Lord and worthy of your allegiance even when the culture around you pressures you to conform to it, and even when your life, even when your precious life is threatened. We see this all the time as a church, right? When high school students graduate and go off to college, they wrestle with this question more intensely. Do I continue to follow Christ or do I abandon him? Mommy and daddy's no longer around. I have the freedom. And unfortunately, more than half of high school, uh, high school graduates end up leaving the faith or they recreate a faith in their own image to make it more palatable to their taste. It's a basic abandonment of Jesus. For some people, and it could be after college, you know, they somehow survived through college. They did pretty well, but... Post-college life, as you know, is filled with many temptations. The world seems much more alluring. And so again, you have to decide, do I continue to follow Christ or do I abandon him? But for all of us, once you decide to follow Christ, see, everything about your life is meant to gradually change. We slowly become more and more like Jesus, or we're supposed to be on that journey because our priorities are meant to shift from self to God, from wanting to just secure earthly comfort versus pursuing heavenly security. I had a meaningful conversation with my son Caleb a few days ago. It wasn't a long conversation. I don't want you. I don't want to give you the impression that we talk all the time. You know, much of our conversation conversation in the car. I mean, it, it happens sparsely. Like we're sort of like in silence for like thirty minutes, and then you know we'll we'll talk that kind of thing. I think you can relate, right? 
but it was a meaningful conversation. We were talking about something his friend had done that was wrong, which led to the question of when would it be good or right to ever rat out your own friend for doing something wrong? Okay? Would you ever rat out your own friend? Serious question. And I told him that it would depend on the severity of the act. So I gave him an example. Let's say your friend sexually assaulted a girl. Okay? Thankfully, he said, yes, if, if it's something like that, then he would, of course, rat him out. And I pushed back and said, I'm playing devil's advocate here, okay, what if the cost of that is losing all of your close friends? Okay? I'm trying to make him think. I'm trying to help him uh, understand what his priority should be. Right? Then I told Caleb, you know, there was this kid um, in the news. Uh, I, I'm sure some of you have seen it. I, I saw the video of it as well. But he stood up to some bullies at school because one of his friends, it was, uh, he was getting bullied. And he stood up, and unfortunately, those bullies turned on him, and he ended up losing his life. He died. Right? They were kicking him. They were punching him. Uh, it was gruesome, and he died. And I asked my son, Caleb, Caleb, what would you have done if you saw these bullies attack your friend? He said, it's kind of surprised me, to be honest. Okay? I didn't really know that he would give me such a, such a noble answer. Okay? Maybe it's just lip service. I don't know. Okay? But he said, I'd rather die than just stand by watching. Okay? I'd rather die. Okay? And in my head, I confess, I was a bit skeptical. In my head, I didn't say it out loud. In my head, I was like, really? Okay? <laughs> really? Because I'm thinking to myself, you know, your dad, once upon a time, had a chance to stand, stand up against some bullies, too, in middle school. I mean, he was in high school now. I was in middle school. I failed. I failed. Okay? I, I failed miserably. Two bullies picking on, taunting, harassing this mentally disabled girl of all people. And I was scared. Right? I, was, I wasn't that small of a kid, but, you know, they were, they were rough I mean, they're, they're rough characters. I was scared. And I would just sit. I, I was at my seat. In, it was in the classroom during, like, break period. Just watching and knowing it was wrong, but staying silent, right, lest I, you know, be the object of their taunting and harassment. Not proud of it. It's a personal failure that still haunts me to this day, to be honest. So that was inside. I was thinking of that inside. But hourly, I told him, that's good. <laughs> that's very good. But you know what? Easier said than done. And life will test you. Okay? Life will test you. And I left it at that. And another, you know, 20 minutes of silence. Until <laughs> but. but think about that. Right? We're called to realign our priorities. Not easy. Thirdly, God's upside-down kingdom is meant to give us a new battle plan, okay? Do you view life as a war? Well, that's how the Bible portrays it. 
Verse 10 and following says, I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. You know, uh, let me be clear here. It's not that God's people were forbidden to use horses in battle. But God did prohibit the kings of Israel from acquiring too many horses. Deuteronomy chapter 17, you can look it up. Verse 16, right? And he, he prohibited these kings of Israel from acquiring too many horses lest they place their trust in the strength of horses and chariots and not in God, you see. Because that, that's a temptation of every person. It's a common temptation, which is why the psalmist writes in Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we, as God's people, are called to trust in the name of the Lord our God. It's a reminder. You know, what's helpful is that the New Testament makes it clear to us as to who our real enemy is and how we're to primarily engage in this battle against our enemy, right? Ephesians 6 describes this very well, tells us that our main struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces and the, of evil in the heavenly realms, and behind it all is, of course, Satan himself. In other words, this is not primarily a physical battle that requires us to bear physical arms, but rather this is a spiritual battle that requires spiritual armor and weapons like what's listed, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, right, the gospel of peace, shield of faith, and the helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit, those kinds of weapons, spiritual weapons in nature. You know, if Jesus' kingdom was of this world, he definitely would have given us different marching orders, don't you think? I love that we get to see him interact with Pontius Pilate during the most crucial moment during his life here on earth. Jesus said, my kingdom, Pontius, is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered to the Jews. See, I would have given permission for them to bear arms to prevent the Jews from arresting me, you see. But my kingdom, he says again, is not from the world. So we've got to be clear about that. If Jesus' kingdom was of this world, Jesus not only would have all of us armed for physical battle, but he would want us to occupy the highest positions of the land at all costs because that's what would matter the most in this life. If this world, as we know it, was the kingdom, if this is all there was, why would he not? Of course, we'd all have to occupy the highest positions at all costs. 
By the way, there's nothing wrong with wanting to occupy certain high positions in this life, okay? I mean, there's nothing wrong with wanting to succeed in your field, okay? Whether it's baseball, okay? My, my son has ambitions to play baseball, okay? Uh, and I'm sure he was sort of impressed by Shohei's contract as well. But whatever fields you're in, there's nothing wrong with having an ambition to do well and occupy a high position, right? The upside-down nature of God's kingdom doesn't mean that we're called to only occupy the lowest and the most humble positions in society. No. It means that we are called to prioritize God's kingdom values in whatever field we occupy. And if that ever prevents us from climbing the ladder of success, then we're to learn how to be content with that. We say that's okay because, again, that's not my ultimate treasure. That's not my ultimate goal. I wanted to honor God in it, but I'm not going to unravel because I can't get it. Because this, is, this world, again, is not the kingdom. And so you got to know what the battle plan is, right? who the enemy is, what weapons you're called to fight with. Number four, God's upside-down kingdom is meant to change the way we view our salvation. Please understand that Jesus is not simply serving as an example of humility for us to follow here, okay? He's surely not less than that, but he's definitely more than that because in his humility, he actually accomplished our salvation, right? He accomplishes our salvation by being our substitute on the cross. He's not just an example. He accomplishes something very valuable. Verse 11 says, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Right? There's language of blood, of covenant, of people being rescued from a waterless pit. The picture of salvation, brothers and sisters. The most famous waterless pit in the Bible is the one Joseph was thrown into when he was left to die by his brothers. And so this verse promises to us that just as Joseph was spared from his waterless pit, because of Jesus' shed blood for us, we too will be spared from death. That means that our confidence is not to be anything that we do or will do. Again, we're stuck in a pit. There's no water in there. We're going to die. We're unable to rescue ourselves. But our humble king bled for us on that cross. Again, not simply as an example of humility for us to follow, but as an actual substitute that we could live. If it was just an example, then I, again, I would be ruined because I fail too many times. I can't meet his standards he can't just be an example for me to follow. There's no hope in that. We need for him to be our substitute. Understand that. So the good news is that 
if we believe that Jesus is our substitute, see, we would be able to battle against our sin day in and day out, and it would never be easy. Right? It'll never be easy. Life is never gonna be easy. But we'll be able to still live in hope and have the assurance that although we may not be perfect, right, we're counted as perfect by the grace of God because, again, he is our substitute. Now, will some people abuse that kind of grace? Of course they will. But most people would be humbled by such a grace and grow deeper in their love for Christ. And I hope it's the case with all of you. Number five, my last point. God's upside-down kingdom is meant to make us into a more resilient people in the face of adversity. Where do I get this? In verse 15, it says, The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. A very interesting verse. Right? I didn't quite understand it in the beginning when I first read it. And I think uh, depending on the translation you look at, it'll, it'll take it slightly differently. There's sort of a, have a different nuance to it. But literally, it reads, they shall eat the sling stones and subdue them. Right? So God's people will eat the sling stones and subdue them is basically what we read. So it's, it's strange, but let me try to unpack this for you, okay? This, the sling stones here, they represent adversity and, and whatever the enemy chooses to throw at us in this life. Stones, you can look at them as hardships, adversity, whatever it may be, okay? Whatever the enemy's trying to do to derail you, and so the vision is that God's people will be struck by these stones, but they will not be defeated. They will subdue the stones and press on in the end. Uh, you might be so confused with the idea of eating the stones. And so I think it might be helpful to think of it this way, right? That in some redemptive way, God allows us to actually find great encouragement as we suffer in this life because we're told that as we suffer, we are actually joining in the suffering of Christ. And I'll, I'll share a, a few verses before I end the message, but that's the general idea. And so suffering, I know that it, it ruins certain people, but those who are in Christ, when we realize that it's a part of our experience to join in the fellowship of Christ's suffering, it, it can have the power to actually encourage us and nourish our souls to press on. And so eating the stones can represent that, right? We eat, we're nourished through it in some way, we're encouraged. It doesn't ruin us in the end, but it feeds us and allows us to keep going. This, this verse, a, a few verses came to mind as I was reflecting upon this passage. First is, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, you know this one very well. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck, but not destroyed. Okay. Isn't that what's happening here? 
See how, how the New Testament echoes what we read in Zechariah? I mean, let's not kid ourselves, brothers and sisters. The, the stones that are hurled at us by our enemy, it, it does have the force to shake us and even cause injury. I know how painful it can be, but the testimony of Scripture is that the hardship we experience in this life can actually have the opposite effect, right? What I said earlier, our great enemy wants to derail us and discourage us, but God, in his redemptive work, he allows it to have the opposite effect. Think of, think of Job's example for a moment with me, okay? Another, another passage that came to mind. Satan's claim to God was that the only reason why God, or why Job, rather, loved and served God was because God had blessed Job with so many earthly blessings, right? the blessings of wealth, right? He had show his money, the blessing of health, the blessing of family, and a multitude of children. But Satan's claim was once those things are taken away from him, Job's going to curse you. He's going to turn his back against you. He's going to abandon you. He's no longer going to love you. And so that's the test. I believe that's the test that we're all called to face in this life. We need to ask ourselves the question, do we love the Lord because of the earthly blessings he provides for us in this life? Is that the reason why we worship him? Or do we love the Lord because of who he is? Which one is it? Brothers and sisters, whenever you face adversity, I believe that you're given the opportunity to clearly testify of what and who you actually treasure in this life. It's giving you that opportunity. So when, when it says that we eat the stones, Understand it to be, it's food for us that will give us the motivation and encouragement that we need to continue pressing on in this life, knowing what God is wanting to do through these hardships. Let me close with the two, two passages I mentioned. Acts chapter five, this hopefully will make sense to you. This is talking about the apostles after they had been persecuted, after stones had been hurled at them. This is their response. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Right? It's a different outlook, isn't it? Different perspective. Right? The world is counting us as part of God's people, right? You should feel honored. First Peter chapter four, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice, it's an echo of Zechariah here, rejoice as you share Christ's sufferings, as you behold your humble king riding on a donkey dying on a cross. Rejoice, 
Because if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you, you see. So brothers and sisters, let's behold our humble king and embrace who we are as his people. We've been called to live out our identity as citizens of this upside-down kingdom. Let's be resilient. Let's endure through whatever hardships may come our way. And let's use every hardship as an opportunity to testify of who we most value in this life. Amen? Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we rejoice greatly in the revelation of our King, righteous yet humble and mounted on a donkey. We find comfort in knowing that though this may not inspire confidence in any worldly sense, it points to the ultimate victory and spiritual triumph that we as believers ultimately inherit in Christ. Help us, Lord, to rebuild our faith by loving and serving our humble King and grant us the courage to embrace the paradoxical and counterintuitive principles of your kingdom. May we, like the apostles in Acts chapter 5, rejoice when counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. Continue to strengthen us, strengthen us, that we may tread down the sling stones and find strength in the midst of persecution or hardship. And as you scatter us once again to represent you in this world, firmly anchor us in your love and grant us the boldness to stand firm in the face of any cultural dissonance we may experience this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So stand together and give God praise. Amen.